Hey guys, I'm breaking the format a little bit this week, partly because I really just don't want to talk about baseball right now, and I get the feeling you really don't want to listen to it either. This week's episode was supposed to be a rant against the U Darvish trade, going off on the Ricketts family, and, well, think of it another way, we're going off on something else the Ricketts family caused, and led to much more drastic consequences. It's, yeah, uh, it's been a real couple days since watching the invasion and insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, which are just an astounding group of words to have to say back-to-back. But nonetheless, there they are. And uh, you can tell in my voice, it's been a real mix of sadness and anger and anger and sadness I've had to process over the past couple days. So rather than pretend that this isn't happening and, you know, transport myself and yourself to fantasy land for a half hour, I thought I would really just rather kind of work through the feelings that we've been going through. And I asked Don Ennis, who's our great managing editor here at OutSports and the co-host of the Transporter Room, If she wouldn't mind just coming on for a half hour and kind of helping me talk through this, and hopefully I helped her talk through some of her feelings too, and this is what we got. So, uh, yeah, next week we'll be back. Uh, I'm still mad at the Udarvis trade, and there will be a lot to say about that, but for now, there's a lot more important things to talk about. Oh, and I should also point out that I know it's cliche to have a very special comedian talks in solemn voice about important issues episode when there's been a big national tragedy. And I think maybe we should also focus on the reason and start asking the question, why are we at a point where that's become cliche and why that's happened so many times? And maybe going forward, let's try working on our country so that We don't have to have episodes like this every so often, every couple months. How about that, huh? Got it. (laughs) I can barely say anything at the start. This is fun. That's good. Uh, Yeah, we'll we'll just start with this. How are you, Don Ennis? How are you doing? You know, it's been a tough time. I've, I've been having a tough time. I sort of feel as if this is the closest I've felt to what it was like after 9-11, where I didn't really know how I felt, but I just knew that I was going through the motions, trying to get stuff done, trying to take personal care of myself, trying to take it one hour at a time, one moment at a time, and not stress out. But uh, I would say that uh, I was feeling very drained, very drained from the events of the week, specifically the siege on our capital. Yeah, which just just saying those words is it's that's really it's still hearing those words in my mind is is I, I don't have words to process that almost you know. Um, yeah, I know, and watching it live unfold on television and on the internet, um, my children and I gathered together in the living room. We watched it. Um, we would sometimes switch back and forth to see how Fox was handling it, switching between CNN and MSNBC. Uh, We're a progressive household. Um, There's a lot of yelling back at the television, like anytime they call them protesters. Um, Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, I was prepared for it to be a really happy day, that 
the very perfunctory job of certifying the results was going to happen and that would be the end of all this Michigas. And instead, they were up till 3.41 in the morning doing the people's business. It just, I, I, I am the daughter of a police officer. I have a spot in my heart for all cops. But watching the police open the gates, watching the police officers on the Capitol Police Squad take selfies and let people run through our house was very disturbing to me and very upsetting. And I think that the best tweets of this entire experience have been those that even cited by our president-elect, that if this were black protesters, if this was Black Lives Matter, there'd be dead bodies everywhere and gunshots and thousands of arrests, and it never would have happened the way it did. And as a white woman, I have to own that. And yeah, and seeing the footage on social media of police officers opening up the barricades to uh, all the coup participants, essentially, I flashed on to uh, the stories you would hear uh, during the summer protest periodically that I would just kind of see headlines on a news site about the infiltration of the white nationalist movement into the police departments throughout our country. And that was kind of all I could think of as you saw the, the, these people forcibly taking the Capitol essentially with no opposition whatsoever. And, and kind of early on, I kind of thought, Jesus, is there some kind of inside job thing going on here where uh, some of the, the Capitol police, are they part of this movement or are they at least kind of giving tacit approval to some of this? It's and also, I, I wonder too, like, how long have we been getting warnings about white nationalist infiltration of police departments without paying attention because those warnings were coming from black voices or Latinx voices or even LGBTQ voices? And it's just the, the curtain of white privilege not letting those voices get past. And, and here we are in this situation. I encourage you and your listeners to watch what Joy Reid said. She took us to church and she basically said that this is what happens when the black people who saw that video that you and I watched feel the outrage knowing that they could not do what this is. Because according to her, and I'm not saying I agree with everything, but I think it's very important to us for us to hear it white people like those who uh took the capital feel that they own the police that they pay their taxes and that they are like us they're part and parcel of the same group so we can do anything we want they're not afraid of the police they're not worried they can do it with impunity whereas a black person in america never feels that way because even the black officers generally are on the side of the white power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to say, um, I'm very angry, but I'm holding it in. I'm holding it in check at those people who I know and love who are conservative, who are today and tomorrow and for the rest of time playing the whataboutism game. Oh. Well, what about 
Stacey Abrams, why didn't she uh, concede? Or what about those Black Lives Matter protesters, those Marxists? What about the burning of the Target store? And all this stuff completely is... Imagine somebody talking to a Holocaust survivor and said, well, yeah, well, how come you, uh, you did this and you did that? Well, you know what? I mean, the atrocity is the conversation. It's not about what other people did when you were you know, upset about it. It's about this. People can't focus though. They have to shift. They have to de- de- distract and, um, oh, it's just, it's so tiring, Ken. It's Absolutely. just so exhausting. Yeah. What, what aboutism is one of the first tactics when you realize that you've got nothing tangible to add to this discussion. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's, uh, it's something that's effective on TV, which is why people use it so often because TV is always looking to move on to the next soundbite. So deflection <laughs> is, is effective there, but in terms of actually reaching some kind of thoughtful conclusion, it's, it adds nothing at all to the, the discussion. Uh, and to go back uh, one point in what, what you were just discussing too, in terms of uh, the, the very different views that white people have of police compared to every other minority in this country. Uh, and I just use Including the word LGBT. Minority. Yeah. Well, uh, marginalized people are, marginalized. Let's, let's say, yeah, let's say marginalized I mean, folks. Yeah, that, that's my bad. I'm trying to, to get better at that, but that, that's one where I am sadly 42 years old and it shows. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Every time you say, every time you say I made a mistake and I'm going to fix it, that's a point for you. Because mm-hmm. I always believe that saying my bad is a get out of jail free card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but from I, my, my personal experience, just uh, something that, that you're, you're talking about that reminded me of, mm-hmm. the best example, most shining example of that from my very, very white bread, sterile suburban Chicago upbringing is that when I went to elementary school, like a couple times a year, we would have like classroom assemblies where a visiting police officer would come in to talk about uh, how much we should rely on them for yes. uh, for any time we felt like we were in danger. Run toward a policeman. Or if you feel that there's anything that's suspicious, tell a policeman. And the officer's name that they gave to us was always officer friendly. Do you think in any black community in this country that a policeman would come in and say, yes, please call me officer friendly? I would say that um, they'd be laughed at or booed or chased or something um, or ignored. Um, I can't speak for the black experience. I grew up very privileged. I had both white privilege and male privilege growing up. And uh, in the Catholic community, I had Catholic privilege. And I will say that the black children that I encountered were the ones on the school bus, not the one I rode, the one that took them from another neighborhood in very segregated Long Island, New York, Mm. and brought them to my neighborhood school so they could get a better education than in their neighborhood. So I can't speak to what that would be like to see a white police officer called officer friendly, but I think they would give you a, uh, uh, let's use use a, a, a sitcom of the times, what you're talking about, Willis? I think you'd you'd really get a uh, a complete lack of confidence uh, response in that. Yeah, and uh, and it would be justified. To, like even 
like a six-year-old kid should ask, hey, do you know your history? That officer friendly may have even beaten that person's father or arrested them. Yeah. 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 And and this is something that, you know, we're, we're all have spent the entire summer kind of just coming to grips with and realizing. And, and the most, to me, the most depressing thing about the police involvement with the Capitol riot yesterday was that like, if, even a few days before the incident could have happened, like if, if someone had told you that there's going to be a rush of Trump supporters on the U.S. Capitol, like your brain could have immediately defaulted to, well, I'm sure the Capitol Police would, you know, be perfectly fine letting them do whatever they want because they're white. Uh, so they'll stand aside. Like just how sadly predictable and almost it's almost a hack premise like it's that level of predictability at this point. I think the difference is that the police themselves were unprepared for the level of anger and violence or the amount that they were stirred up by President Trump, Rudy Giuliani, the the march, the whole idea of marching on something. This went from what was expected to be a demonstration, and I'm sure that's what the police thought was going to happen, what people were going to just demonstrate, to an invasion, to a siege, to an insurrection. Uh, I don't use the word coup only because someone told me that it's only involving the military, but whatever. It certainly looked like a coup, sure. uh, walks like a coup, talks like a coup, cuckoo. Um, here's a question. When can we start making jokes about it? <laughs> I saw somebody on Twitter, since you're a comedian, he said, well, I guess it's time to defund the Capitol Police and send in social workers. And I thought, um, too soon. Yeah, too soon, also, not funny. Not also, funny. It's also just not a funny joke to begin with. Like, even if it had been an appropriate <laughs> amount of time, that joke fucking sucks. Uh, <laughs> but um, is it okay to make jokes about something like that? I mean, we, we just learned, by the way. Uh, by the time listeners hear this, it'll be old news, but a police officer was also among the dead. There's five dead. Yeah, um, yeah I, that, that question, and I will answer it in a second, but it, it does remind me of a show that I went to in, when I was still living in New York. Um, it might have been like the night of the Sandy Hook shooting, just to kind of be with friends and just to get my mind out of the unre- unbelievable sadness. Maybe... Maybe it would have been the day after, uh, but it was, it was real close. And I remember uh, a great comic named Jeffrey Joseph, who's just funny as hell, was on the bill that night. And I don't know if somebody had mentioned or done a, a gun joke, but he went up and one of the first things he said after taking the microphone out of the stand uh, was maybe talking about like what he'd read on Twitter, comics trying to make jokes. And he just stared at the crowd for a second and went, Tragedy plus time, motherfucker. And yeah, I, like, so you, that's the crucial element. You need the plus time. Yeah. And it's really kind of a sense, it's really just a feeling you have of uh, this feels like maybe enough time has passed where I'm going to be able to say something about it and, and see if I can make this work. And there's, there's no hard and fast answer to that, but just a sense of like when you introduce it to the crowd and you see like, see the tension immediately, you probably know, okay, unless this is the best possible joke about the subject, 
this is not not the enough plus time to to for it to work. Yeah. Um, eventually, well, somebody responded to Matthew Iglesias saying a line that you're familiar with: "Read the room." Yeah. Yes. One hundred percent. Read the room. Um, <laughs> and eventually, there will be jokes about this because there are powerful and there are terrible people involved in this who absolutely need, need to be taken down by as many many people uh, comics taken down comic wise as possible like first of all anything that involves trump you have to you have to attack and not and not in the oh orange cheeto funny haha way but you have to you have to go like speak truth to power like that and like legit cut to the bone uh and that that's when when jokes about this work, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be about the power that was behind this and the cult-like mentality of so many people that followed that power. And uh, that that's how are you doing? Ah, uh, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm. You asked still, me about me, but I want to know about you. Yeah, still, still processing. It's 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 been a very part of part of the thing is that. I've, I've been working over the past couple of years with a therapist about kind of allowing myself to deal with negative emotions. Uh, I've, I've, I have a real block when it comes to uh, especially sadness. And I've been slowly kind of working my way through that and, and getting more in touch with, with that and just kind of allowing that to be, be within me. Um, so I've been kind of taking the time just to kind of be with myself and process that. But it's been hard. Uh, I, 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 I think back a little bit, uh, and this might be a roundabout way of answering a question that's a direct question, but um, I think back to, again, back when I lived out in the Northeast, the first time I visited my sister in the D.C. area after the election of 2016 and getting dropped off at the bus station, at Union Station in, in uh, downtown D.C., and in a place where, you know, I'm a history nerd. I, I love visiting Washington, D.C. I love exploring and doing the touristy shit. Um, but it was the first time kind of getting out and seeing the Capitol uh, and seeing the levers of power after the transition to Trump. And it was this kind of unmistakable sense of something had flipped, that there was this, this unspoken sinister vibe to it. And as we saw uh, all of these horrific people taking over the Capitol yesterday, I just got the sense of this is like the completion of that feeling I felt on that first day. Like if this almost was inevitable and just kind of speaking, the, just speaking those words right now. Uh, and you can probably kind of tell in my voice that there is a level of anger that rises when, when you realize that, that this is the inevitable result of these past four years. And we were it, building to this. Yeah, it really. And, and there were so many spots along the way where we were crying out desperately. That this is, this is a path that, that this is something that we cannot cross a Rubicon. We cannot cross. And, and if you allow this to keep happening, we're going to have some real drastic consequences. We didn't know what they were at the time, but here they are. Like this is everything these past four years coming home to roost. And, and I think also you have to include the fact that 
We have 13 more days. Yeah. This is not over yet. And that, yeah, we that's, still have to get through the next two weeks. Living through 13 days at the end of a president's term should not feel like an achievement. But it's going to feel like <laughs> goddamn BJ Day. When... VT, VDJT Day. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. But, I know, I know. I know. The, the future does look promising, but when are we going to get there? Yeah. And, and, and so, and that this is another thing. Another problem that I'm having is, is after these past four years, uh, and this is just a side effect, believe me, it's a very small one, but I, I'm, I'm fucking tired of founder porn in this country that, you know, like, yeah. you couldn't have built in something to the government that maybe could have foreseen that the worst possible person in pursuit of power could have taken things over. But yeah, let's keep them around three months because, you know, that's just the way things are. Like nobody mm-hmm. could have seen this happening. Nobody could have anticipated after living under goddamn King George the Third that things could break bad. Here, inauguration used to be in March, sir. Yeah, so right, right. Your blessings. <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah. This is the improvement. I know, um, I know. And and here's the other thing. The other thing is that I see so much potential in Biden as far as him filling the gap that exists right now because we don't have a leader. We mm-hmm. don't have someone to look up to, but. Let's not burn the fucker out. I mean, the guy hasn't even gotten in the job yet. Yeah. And we're putting so much on his shoulders already. And I, I, he's an old man, you know. <laughs> Joe, take a nap. <laughs> Get your rest. Absolutely. Yeah, like delegate, man, as much as you can. Like you've got so much competence. Please do. Really? And in, in, in unspoken and uh, understandably unspoken, but in the middle of all this is that we're going to have to figure out how to like effectively roll out the vaccines at some point so we can you know, actually go outside again, those of us who are not trying to pull into coup. Um, but yeah, Joe, Joe Biden, so Joe Biden, I, I, I am, as you probably know and would expect anyway, Joe Biden was like at, at most my eighth choice among yeah. the Democratic candidates. Well, same here. Yeah. Um, but man, like, especially ever since the convention, like just listening to him speak, I'm about on the verge of tears every time he talks. <laughs> Because just just to hear that very basic human empathy again mm. uh, is to realize the deficit we've been operating under for four years. Uh, Can I tell and- you the moment that he won me over? He uh, reached out to a boy who wrote to him, mm-hmm. a boy who stutters. Mm-hmm. And he wanted this boy to know, yeah, he has a stutter too, and he had to learn how to overcome it. And he's been a pen pal of this boy mm-hmm. for like a couple of years now. And... When I saw that story, I just thought he had trouble putting words together. I just figured he's a doddering old man. <laughs> no, he's got a speech impediment. He's He's got a disability. And f- fuck, if it didn't conquer it. I mean, he, he learned to live with it and learned to make the best of it. And he wants others to feel that they can too. He is the anti-Trump. Yeah. And no, he was not my first or second or third or fourth candidate but I'm so glad we um, wound up with him. I think we're lucky that we wound up with him. And you know how close we came to having Trump again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we, were, I, we were moving to Ireland, Ken. <laughs> I was moving my kids to Ireland. I'm not kidding you. I, uh, that that uh, election night. Uh, election I, week. <laughs> the first night of election week. Yeah. Uh, I had been gone dark purposely most of that night. And I remember. Uh, yeah, the, so... When I finally decided to check in, like the first thing I saw was one of my college friends just typing out the phrase, I can't stop crying. I assume after maybe they called Texas or Florida and things look bleak. And that's all I saw. 
And at, at like two in the morning, I started shaking. Like, and for like 10 minutes, I couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. A good kind of shaking. No, 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 good no, no, kind no. Of shaking. The wor- no. The worst kind, actually. I, I thought, oh. I saw that. I, oh, you mean when we float, when the blue, uh, yes, I understand. The red wave, the red fog or whatever they called it. Yeah. yeah, this is before everything started turning and going in the right direction. When, I see, I, okay. I just I, saw I, that they'd called Texas and Florida, and my friend was upset, and I thought, oh, my God, what the hell happened? And I just flipped out. So, yeah, like. <laughs> I've actually erased all that from my memory. I have to be very honest. I, I can't. Yeah, I I can't go back to that. Um, no offense, I I respect that you're um, fixated on it, but for me it was like I had to um, I had to support my kids mm-hmm. and I had to do our jobs and I tried to just um, keep reminding myself that it will be days that don't react, don't overreact, don't underreact, just don't. And at, that's what got me through it. I mean, everyone has to do their own thing. I have a therapist too. And um, the thing that I have learned in 2020 that has really helped me has been to um, take a moment to pause. Um, I am the first person to put up the fist, you know, (laughs) and uh, someone's wrong on the internet. I've got to fix it, you know, and I'm the first person to get in trouble with that. And I have really learned to just go, hmm, okay, well, that's going to let that sit for a little while. And I've written many an email and then hit delete. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's uh, probably saved my bacon more than once. Um, <laughs> it's, it's something you've got to do when you're an old lady. It's, it's a life skill. Absolutely. Yeah. It is. My, my, it's interesting because my, uh, I guess what I learned from 2020 in terms of resolutions going into this year, it's somewhat in the opposite direction, but for the same kind of peace of mind, I think, um, because my problem is less like going to immediate confrontation and more just letting it like absorb into my mind to the point where it becomes impossible not to obsess over. And my resolution, I think this year, and I don't know how good I'm going to be at keeping it, but is when I see a story like Ted Cruz is going to object to the electoral votes (laughs) instead of fixating on that to the point of badness uh, for my response is now fuck him. And so, no, thank you. Yeah. So not, not yeah. to pick fights, but just kind of to pick strategic yeah. moments of fuck this. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a, that's a good – I think that's a good strategy. Yeah. I, yeah. I, also, I have to ask you one other question, and I know this is not my place to ask questions. I'm supposed to be answering questions. But You're a journalist. It's what you do. Chris Bryant? That's are in talk. Please don't. Please, yeah. So, yeah, I was <laughs> going to say at the end, you're going to be invited back in two weeks because you're going to be talking to Francisco Lindor, assuming there's a country in two weeks to talk about. Have yeah, if we, if we don't time. blow the fucking thing up, we're right. going to be back. You're yeah, right. we're, we'll if to... we're talking Chris Bryant, I will be very sad. Uh, yeah, it's KB had a real – the thing is they'll be selling him at his very lowest point, too, after last year. I know, was, I know. He was, he was not good. Um, and I assume that there are – some pretty major injury reasons behind that. But it was bizarre to watch because he maintained like all of his batting skills. He's still got the great batting eye. He works the counts like one of the best hitters in the game. But it was like he forgot how to hit a center cut fastball. He would get into 3-1, 2-0 counts and think, okay, here comes his pitch. And sure enough, he'd get the pitch and swing right through it over and over and over again. And it drives everybody here nuts. You can't. You don't think it it's out. a matter of coaching? You don't think that's something that the Mets could fix with coaching? I think that there you could also 
maybe change the philosophy a little bit because the Cubs as a whole have become, and I can't believe I'm saying this, too passive. <laughs> they're, they're, but it's true. They are too passive as an offense right now. Mm-hmm. That they're kind of operating as if this was still 2016, where you don't have everybody throwing 95 miles an hour with killer sliders. Mm-hmm. And I think the approach that they need to adopt now is more along the lines of, if you see a fastball, anticipate it and hunt that fastball because you might be getting only one this at that. So be prepared and be ready to be aggressive. Uh, and they just haven't shifted over to that. But you know. I, I grew up in the era of the Mets who always take the first pitch. Hmm. And it was this terrible 80s uh, tradition that every Met at bat would watch the first pitch come in and get called out on strikes. And if they had just swung at the first pitch, just swing. What the fuck? What, what, what do you got to lose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the big news, of course, for us is Francisco Lindor and yes. Carlos Carrasco. I mean, that's yeah. huge. huge. Steve Cohen is not kidding around. And he shouldn't. And the Mets are going to be one of now three teams in baseball that's trying to win. And they're all in the National League, which is weird. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that will be we we got to do an entire episode around that because I agree a lot. To I'm just I just wanted to lighten the mood a little bit only because here here's the thing. Congratulations! I mean that's that's awesome to have. Well, I agree, and I, I'm very happy about it. Um, it. Being a Mets fan is one of the things I'm most proud of about all the things I am proud of. Mm-hmm. But I I will tell you that it's it's tinged because I probably won't get to get the City Field this year. Or at least not right away. I don't feel comfortable going to City Field, even if they let us in. Mm-hmm. I still worry. I see people in movies and I say, oh, they're not practicing social distancing. Where's the masks? So, you know, the COVID thing is still very much present of mind. Seeing all those people yes, uh, uh, at the siege, you know, who knows what they brought into the Capitol? I mean, some of the guys were saying they were smoking weed in the Oregon room, whatever that is. Um, there's so much angst right now that I grasp at every little thing. And that's why I brought this up because uh, for me, um, it's those little bits of joy sprinkled in among the chaos and deritus of our lives that um, I cling to to get me from point to point. Yeah. Uh, And there's one in particular moment of joy that I've been like mainlining the past couple of days that uh, before this uh, at last weekend, actually, uh, as if in anticipation of what was about to happen this week, uh, my sister texted me a link to uh, Harry Styles' Treat People with Kindness video. Uh, oh, my God, that's everything we need right now. Uh, yeah. Between just looking into those eyes and also... <laughs> he's gorgeous, yeah. White, white pants he's wearing, but also it's, it's just, it's a bop and it's, it's an earworm and it's uplifting and throwback uplifting too is it's yeah i i can't recommend it enough right now especially so i teach a course called the news uh across platforms the story behind the story and my favorite chapter uh in a textbook that i teach from that students also get really plugged into is music and where music comes from and what our music traditions are and You'll never probably remember a paragraph from a book you were assigned to read in sixth grade. You'll probably forget the names of the countries in Africa you had to memorize for a quiz. But if I ask you to uh, sing a song that was ingrained in your memory from a special day or a special person or a place where you heard it, 
it'll be like a touchstone. It'll be like traveling through time. Music has this ability to make us cry, make us heal, make us feel. And uh, I, I, I pity anyone who doesn't have this same bond that you and I have with music because it is so important to get out of yourself and put on the headphones or the earbuds and tune out the world and just let the music roll over you because like I've, I've been binging Mary J. Blige lately. Hmm, nice. I never, I never listened to her before, but I was going through the things on Apple or whatever. And I said, you know, I never really listened to her. So let me give it. And I downloaded a couple of albums and I'm hooked. Why not? Right. Why not expand my horizons a little bit? Why not try to find something that maybe I haven't found before? I'm not a big country music fan. There's like one or two songs of country music, uh, mostly Johnny Cash, that uh, really get to me. But I took a chance. And I hope people do the same thing with punk and Dead Kennedys and with classical music. And uh, I listened to opera recently just because, because it's out there. And maybe it's something I'm missing that I need. Yeah. And it's something good that people have produced over centuries. And yeah, we need as many reminders of that as possible. And to your point about the power of music, I certainly cannot remember most of the countries in Africa, but I damn well can bless the rains down there. Thank you, Toto. We're and not in fun. Kansas anymore. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong Toto. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Don Ennis, uh, yeah, thank you for spending this time. I uh, just needed to kind of talk through some of this. And yeah, you were there for me and I really appreciate it. Ken, I want you to know that you bring something to Outsports that no one has ever brought before. Dick and it's, it's, Sorry, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a sincere form of clever writing, wry humor, and sarcasm that isn't mean. And it's something that I think our readers really appreciate, and I know I do. Sometimes I have to pull the brake a little bit. Sometimes I have to tap the brakes or, or just, you know, maybe say, okay, bring it down from <laughs> 70 to 65. But, but the joy of having you on our team is boundless. And I'm so glad that you reach out to me because I am here for you 24-7, Ken. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, just being able to talk to you and, and uh, gosh, um, knowing that having someone like you on my side it just really means everything to me, Dawn. So, uh, oh, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me today. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, well, let's keep as we say, that. on, that's how we're going to get out of this. I think. As we say on the uh, transporter room, live long and prosper. Indeed. Be well. <laughs>